You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, you are on your throne. All majesty and glory and power belongs to you, and yet you choose to be present here in this gym. By your spirit and because of the work of your son, you who are high and exalted and lifted up, you choose to dwell among the lowly and the contrite. You oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. And so God, there are some some things that we know we need to learn. So Lord, we pray that you would teach us. God, there are some things that we know in our lives that need to change. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would transform us. And God, there are some things that we know we need to believe about you. And so we pray that you would help our unbelief, that you would give us faith that would transform our lives, Lord, and help us as we open your word to hear with faith, God. So lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and uh, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle with extra Bibles for people who need one. And uh, turn to Psalm 31. We're a young church. We don't have a lot of traditions um, as a church that's only about six or seven years old, but one of them is to spend our summer uh, in the Psalms, uh, to just kind of, uh, on my part, just to, grow, to go uh, numerically through the book of Psalms. It's my intention, it's my desire to be uh, a, a preaching pastor here in Brampton at this church for the rest of my life, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's my desire to preach through, Some, someone's happy about that, that's great. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Um, LAUGHTER and so we're about one-fifth of the way through uh, the book of Psalms, and unless the Lord takes us off a different path, this kind of will be our summer uh, tradition. Everyone else who's going to be speaking in the summer won't necessarily be following the, the same order of Psalms that I am, but everyone's going to be uh, speaking on the Psalms this summer. The Psalms just provide a soul so much richness to the Christian life, so much uh, joy, and yet so much angst and confusion and struggle. It's, it's such, a, such a wonderful a part of Scripture. Uh, psalm 31 is a psalm that's loved by many of us. Psalm 31 is a psalm that's loved by uh, people in the history of the Bible. Psalm 31 was quoted by Jonah. Uh, at a time of need. It was quoted a number of times by Jeremiah in a time of need. Psalm 31 was even quoted by Jesus Christ. And at each and every moment in uh, Jonah's life, in Jeremiah's life, in Jesus' life, the moment when the Christian turns to Psalm 31, when I turn to Psalm 31, are times in which I need to trust God. Psalm 31 uh, twice says, I will trust in the Lord. This is a psalm of trust in the midst of struggle and difficulty. Let's get a definition of a trust to get us started here. Trust is the decision to relinquish control and to rely on the actions of another. No one can force you to trust. It is a decision. 
and you're making two decisions when you choose to trust. You are choosing to relinquish your control over a given situation, and you are choosing to rely on the actions of another person. You are trusting, I'm not going to be in control in here. I'm going to let someone else take control, and I am going to rely on them to come through. A trust is the foundation of all relationships, uh, key relationships like, like marriage and family and friendship, uh, less, uh, uh, less intimate relationships, all relationships. Even our relationship with other drivers on the road is based upon trust. If you drove through an intersection today on your way to church, you trusted that the other cars were going to stop at the red light while you went through a green light. You relinquished control. You didn't approach the intersection and then assess where other cars were and then come out of your car and tap on someone's window and say, I just want to make sure you're going to remain stopped while I go through this intersection. That is not relinquishing control. You are trusting that when you drive through, someone is not going to T-bone you. You see, but some of us have been T-boned. And that makes driving hard. And some of us have been hurt by people who we have trusted, people who have been so close to us. And for some of us, trust is a hard thing. And there is only one person that we can put our complete trust in. And that is who Psalm 31 is about. The decision that I will trust in the Lord. It begins in verse 1, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. In this psalm, we're going to see a picture of what it means to trust the Lord. What does trusting the Lord look like? I want to just share with you a real simple picture of trust and picture this. This is one of my boys wanting to jump into a pool and my arms are out. I am ready to catch him. Now, how does trust enter into the equation? Well, my son is going to have to relinquish control. He is going to have to step off the edge above the water and he's going to have to rely on my actions. He is going to have to rely on me to catch him. Now, in order for him to relinquish control and to rely on me, in order for him to trust, he needs to believe some things about me. He needs to believe that I'm capable of catching him, and he needs to believe that I care enough to do so. That's the foundation of trust. You will not relinquish control, you will not rely on another person unless you think that that person is capable, they have the strength, they have the ability, they have the competence, they can come through on what you're relying on them, but furthermore, you need to depend on, the, you need to understand and believe that they care enough. My son needs to believe that I'm strong enough to catch him. My son needs to believe that I, that I care enough, that there's not, this isn't going to be some cruel prank. I'm not going to be distracted by something else going on. No, I'm focused on him. I care about him making this jump. And so today we're going to see in Psalm 31 a picture of what it means to trust the Lord. We just read verses 1 to 2. Here's what we can get out of the opening of the psalm. We 
When we trust in the Lord, trusting in the Lord means we take refuge in his protection. We take refuge in his protection. The first verse there says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. God, I need you. I need you to protect me. He goes on to describe why he needs that protection. Did he catch in verse 2 how he says, deliver me, let me not be put to shame. Verse 2, rescue me and rescue me speedily. He's, he's desperate. He needs God to come through and he's on a timeline. Then he asks God, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Now look at verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress. He just asked in verse 2, be my rock. And now in verse 3, he's saying, you are my rock. And what we see here in the psalm is the psalmist begins by saying, God, this is what I need from you. And then he says, this is what I believe about you. And this is how our prayers need to be shaped, God. This is what I need you to do, but this is who I believe that you are. And in, in, in every instance, in trusting the Lord, you're going to find that he is exactly what you need him to be. We get ourselves into so much trouble when we ask other people to be our refuge, when we ask our possessions to be our refuge, when we ask for certain pleasures or certain things of this world to be our refuge. We ask those things to be something they can't be. But I love how the psalmist here says, I need you to be this, God. I need a rock and I need a refuge and that is who you are. You see, he's believing some things about God. He goes goes on to say, and for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. You are my refuge. Refuge. We can take refuge in the fact that God will indeed protect us. He says that for, for God's namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. It's that God in leading us, he, ha- he enables us to avoid danger. When he gives us his commands, when he gives us his word, when he leads us by his spirit, he protects us from falling into the different traps or temptations that surround us in life. And notice how he's not asking anything for, from God now. He's simply stating what he believes about God. He has a strong, robust theology of who God is. He began by asking God for some things, but now he's simply rehearsing by faith. This is who God is. You won't trust someone unless you believe something about them, that they're capable and that they care about you. And then the ultimate statement of trust in verse 5, into your hand. I commit my spirit. Those are familiar words, aren't they? Those are the words spoken in Luke 23 when Jesus was on the cross. It says and it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The last words of the Son of God on the cross were Psalm 31, an expression of trust. Jesus Christ believed some things about his Father. 
He believed that as he was bearing the wrath of God and dying on the cross, Jesus allowed himself to die. No one killed him. He gave up his spirit. He committed his spirit into the hands of his father. He believed that God was capable of raising him from the dead. And he believed that his father cared about him. And so Jesus, at that moment, quoting Psalm 31, gave the ultimate expression of trust. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And we too now, as followers of Jesus Christ, when we face difficulty and struggle, now that we are filled with his spirit, now that we are walking in his steps, we too can trust the Lord. We too can commit ourselves to him. First uh, Peter sums this up beautifully in First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust make the decision to relinquish control and to rely on the Lord, believing that he's capable and believing that he cares, and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because he's faithful. This is you gotta believe something about God if you're going to trust him. And that's exactly what it says in verse 5. God is faithful. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So the psalmist believes some things about God. That is why he is able to trust in him. Then in verse 6 he says, I, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Well, let's... Let's talk a little bit about why, why would he say, I hate those who practice worthless, or, or who, uh, who pay regard to worthless idols. Aren't we supposed to love one another? Yes, we are. That's why this is a poem and not a command. And poetry expresses feeling, it expresses emotion, it doesn't lay down a way that we are supposed to live our lives. At this particular moment, in this particular psalmist's time, he is, he is up against some people. He is seeing what is going on in the lives of idolaters. And the only emotion, the only way that he can describe it is hatred. And we know, we know that the Psalms are not commands. The Psalms are poems. And we have a command. We have the great command. It's part of our mission statement. That we are not supposed to hate anybody. We're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Whether they worship idols or not. But it's the, it's the idolatry. It is those false refuges that, that the psalmist is referring to here. He's, he's zeroing in on these idols, these things that people are relying on to protect them that can't protect them. God is our our protector, standing behind him is like standing behind a wall made of concrete and granite and titanium. It's, there's, there's nothing, nothing can get past him. He is our protector. But there are other things in life that are just like, like overcooked spaghetti noodles that, that will do nothing to protect you. And those idols, some people think, well, I don't believe in idols. I don't bow down before a statue. Listen, the idols in the ancient Near East were a means to an end. The, I, no one really, really wanted to just bow down to a statue. What they wanted was, a, was what the statue could give them. They wanted power. They wanted possessions. They wanted people to respect them. They wanted pleasure. And so the idol wasn't the refuge. It was what the idol was supposed to get you that provided the refuge. So Underneath all of the idolatry we find in the Bible, 
are the same longings and struggles and sinful desires that all of us struggle with. Those same things that we try to take refuge in. But the psalmist says, but I trust in the Lord. Then verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. You've taken my feet, you've led them away from the traps. And now my feet are in a broad place where I can walk safely and freely because I know that God is with me. So the first piece of trusting God means that we take refuge in his protection. He's all, we're eight verses in. He's only asked God for something in the first two verses. All the verses following that are just him worshiping and talking about how great and powerful and majestic and faithful God is. But now in verse 9, we're going to get a, a closer picture of what is the psalmist going through. Why is he praying in the first place? And this, this will point us to our, our second uh, aspect of trusting in the Lord. Make note of this. Trusting in the Lord means that we ask for his grace. Trusting the Lord means that we ask for his grace. Verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Now we're going to learn what the psalmist was facing. He's asking God for his grace. That God would be kind and show favor to him even when he doesn't deserve it. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Notice verse 9. My eye is wasted from grief. That phrase most likely refers to uh, he's been crying so much that it's written all over his face. His eye is wasted. You ever had that kind of situation where you've been sobbing, you've been bawling your eyes out and then you hear a knock on the door or maybe you were in the in the in the restroom in a, a public setting and you have to go out and see people and you're just kind of like try, trying to make yourself look normal again and people know they know don't they you can tell you can tell when someone's been crying you can tell especially if someone's been sobbing and heaving for sorrow he says my my eye my eyes wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. God created us as spiritual beings and physical beings. Some people try to uh, elevate the spiritual over the physical. Listen, we are, we are interconnected. God is one day going to resurrect our bodies. We aren't just going to spend eternity as a spirit. We are all going to have resurrection bodies. And our spiritual life and our physical life are interconnected. I had someone just very wisely, just a couple of weeks ago, share some advice that I overheard about the importance of, of looking after our body. So often we think we're under spiritual attack, but the truth is we just stayed up too late the night before. Sometimes we feel really discouraged and depressed, but the real reason is we, we didn't eat breakfast. And we confuse... We confuse the spiritual and the physical. Listen, they're so interconnected. And sometimes we need to ask ourselves those questions. Am I sleeping? Am I eating? Am I exercising? But it is true. I, 
All of that aside, it is true that when our spirit is suffering, our bodies suffer. Why do we cry when we're sad? There is a physiological reaction to mental, spiritual, emotional anguish. Why do we shake when, we ner- when we're nervous? Our spirit and our bodies are interconnected. And David is going through something that's so severe here that it is his soul and his body that is wasting away. Verse 10, my life is spent with sorrow. He feels like he has nothing left. His, 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 his emotional bank account is empty. He's got nothing left in the pocket. It is spent my, and my years with sighing, he's going to explain why. My strength fails because of my iniquity. And my bones waste away. He's going to give two explanations of why he's going through what he's going through. The first explanation is his iniquity. He's... He's going through what he's going through. He knows that part of why this is happening to him is because of some decisions that he's made. Some sinful choices that he's made. And he's calling out to God for grace because he knows what he deserves. He knows that a lot of what is happening to him is because of his iniquity, his decision to not do what God said and to decide to do what he wants to do instead. And at this moment of sorrow over his sin, at this moment of being overwhelmed with shame, crying his eyes out, he needs to make that decision, will I trust God? And maybe you are here today and you need to make that decision. Will you trust him with your sin? Remember, trust involves two things. It involves relinquishing control. Stop trying to just make up for it. Stop trying to beat yourself up for it. Stop trying to just improve yourself and climb your way back into God's good graces. Relinquish control and say, I have sinned against you, God. And there's nothing that I can do to make that better. And then the second part of choice or, of trust is to rely on him. And in order to make that choice... Remember, trust is doing two things, but in order to do those two things, you need to believe two things. You need to believe that God cares, and you need to believe that he is capable. And if you want to know if God cares, you look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ where he suffered and died. Where he said, into my hands I commit your spirit, while he was bearing the wrath that all of us deserved for our sin. And if you need evidence beyond that he cares, if you want to know that he's capable, then you look to the empty tomb. And that Jesus rose from the dead, which proved that when he said it is finished, it really is finished. And we need the grace of God because we are all sinful people. And we need mercy. And maybe you haven't trusted him yet. Today is your day to acknowledge your sin, to realize that part of why you're in anguish on the inside, even though everything looks great on the outside, is because you've sinned against a holy God and then cry out to him for mercy. 
and place your faith in Jesus Christ who showed that he cares and that he's capable. Maybe you're here today and you've made that decision, but for some reason you're carrying around all of this weight and this guilt for your sin that you don't need to carry. Take it to the cross. Christ will carry it for you. We ask him for his grace. So that's the first reason why he's going going through this struggle. He says, because of my iniquity. Then look at verse 11. Because of my adversaries. You see, we are sinners living in a sinful world surrounded by sinful people. And so we are fighting a battle on the inside and yet there is also a battle on the outside and there are people who are coming after us and that's where the psalmist found themselves. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach. And then notice this, especially to my neighbors. And an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. You see, what's really breaking the psalmist's heart is not the adversaries. Because you know what, there's just some people they're just like that. And they're always trying to, you know, they're always chirping, they're always criticizing, they're always attacking. And that isn't always what really gets us down. It's not the adversary, it's the acquaintance. And if you pay careful attention here to what's happening in verse 11, it says, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. He's not enemies with his neighbors, but his neighbors are listening to what the adversary is saying. And the neighbors are kind of looking at him a little bit differently now. Maybe that's true. I could, I, yeah. And then this is where it really hurts if you keep reading. So now people who are neutral, people who are friends, people who are neighbors, they're not out to get you, but they start hearing what the adversaries are saying Notice this, an object of dread to my acquaintances, those who see me in the street flee from me. You see, the, the enemies attack, the person at work starts attacking, and then the other co-workers are like, I don't want to get attacked along with this person. And so they start avoiding. Or they think, I don't know if what they're saying is possibly true, and so I'm not going to talk to them anymore. I'm just going to kind of pass them by on the other side of the street. Or the one member of the family just starts giving it to you, and then the rest of your family chooses not to step in between you, chooses just to sort of stand aloof and, and avoid the situation. And they think that they're being neutral, but their decision to walk by on the street says more. And we're walking with some people in our church right now. A family, work, different situations, and there have been some massive accusations, untrue accusations that have been leveled at them. And what has hurt those people the most as we've been praying to them and trying to counsel them, trying to help them in this situation, what hurts them the most in that situation is not what the adversary is saying, but how all the other people are acting around them. 
And may what happens in verse 11, this idea of a a neutral neighbor just kind of walking by and avoid, may that never be true of us as a church. May we believe the best about one another until there is proof. And may we not just think, oh, I just better stand by or you. And if there's no, you go to the person. If they haven't hurt you, and if there's no proof that they've hurt someone else, then there's no reason to treat them any differently. This is breaking the psalmist's heart right there. Verse 12, this is how he feels. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. What's a broken vessel good for? Nothing. That's how he feels. I'm good for nothing. I might as well be dead. People think there's no hope for me. People don't want to talk to me. People are avoiding me. This is what he's going through. Verse 12, where I hear the whispering of many. So much talk going on. So much people pretending like they're not talking, but they're talking. Terror on every side. This is the part of Jeremiah, this is the part of Psalm 31 that Jeremiah quotes a number of times in his book. Terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. We need God's grace. We need God's grace because we know that we are sinners and we need God's grace because people sin against us. Our adversaries sin against us. Our Neighbors who find caught in the middle sin against us. We need God's grace to respond to our own sin and to be able to respond to the sins of other people. But verse 14 says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God, my time, third proof of in your hands. Here's the, the third proof of trusting in God. Trusting in God means that we believe in his sovereignty. We believe in his sovereignty. Notice how he says in verse 14, I trust in you, O Lord. His trust is in God. And then in verse 15 he says, my times are in your hands. That God has the whole situation in his hands. He's not running around trying to catch it. He's not overwhelmed by it. He has it. And it's under control that what you are going through right now is right here. And your whole life, your times are in his hand. That he is sovereign. The sovereignty of God is something that you know, we, we, we talk about in theological discourse. And it seems, makes us seem really smart and all of these sort of things. The, the sovereignty of God is not intended to make, to make you feel smart. The sovereignty of God is intended to make you feel secure. It's it's not meant just to be thought about or debated about. It's meant to be lived and to be believed. Do you believe it? Do you believe that what you are going through, that God is not running around trying to track it down? He has it. It is in his hands. Your times are in his hands. And look how this plays out. He says, so rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. So he's got his eyes on God's hand. And then he says, God, I want you to take your hands and rescue me from the hand of my persecutors. So he's got God's hands and his adversary's hands. Notice he doesn't talk about his hand. You see, if we were writing the psalm and said, and then I'm going to take my hand and I'm showing you where I'm going to put it. No, he's, he's trusting that his times are in God's hand. 
and that God will put those adversaries in their place. Verse 16, he moves from God's hand to God's face. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is what the the priests used to declare over the people in Numbers chapter 6. That the, the face of God, there's no greater blessing than to have the face of God look on you with favor. And in Jesus Christ, that is possible for anyone who's placing their faith in him. Verse 17, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol, which means the grave. Again, don't let me be put to shame. Let them be put to shame. But the way we would normally write this psalm is, they're making me feel shameful, so I'm going to make them feel shameful. They're trying to put me in some place, I'll put them in a place. No, he's trusting in God's sovereignty. He's saying, God, you protect me and you deal with them. Verse 18, let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. The psalmist is asking that God would close the lips of his adversaries. We often think that the best way to shut someone else's mouth is to open ours. All that results in is two mouths saying things they shouldn't say. The best way to close someone's mouth is to close yours. And to let God step in. And to the, It's so hard sometimes. It's so hard when you, you, you know that you're right. You know that you're being misunderstood. You know that the person is being irrational and unreasonable. It's so hard just to keep your mouth shut. But that's what the psalmist does. And that's what people who trust in the sovereignty of God. My times are in his hands. My reputation is in his hands. What I know to be true is in his hands. The ultimate end of this suffering, this struggle, it's all in his hands. He has it under control. This isn't meant just to be a doctrine that we believe. This is a doctrine that we live and trust. And when we don't do it, we miss out. Look at verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. You see what's going on here? We are, we are running around trying to control things, trying to silence people, trying to manage the situation on our own. And meanwhile, God has all of this goodness stored up. He wants to shovel it onto us. He's backing up the dump truck to pour it all over your life. But the key is to, it says there, to fear him. The key is to trust him, to believe that he is sovereign. We so often miss out on the goodness of God because we're so busy trying to control things ourselves. So when we believe in his sovereignty, along with taking refuge in his protection and asking him for grace, here's what will ultimately happen. We will delight in his goodness. We will delight in his goodness. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. And look at verse 19 at the end. In the sight of the children of mankind, God just doesn't want to do it for you. He wants to do it for everyone watching. Neighbors and friends who have been avoiding you can see it so that everyone can see it. The alternative is them seeing you flying off the handle trying to defend yourself, trying to fight a battle that you can't fight. 
but for you to be able to see the goodness of God, for everyone around you to be able to see the goodness of God. Verse 20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. God is with you. He is covering you, sheltering you, protecting you with his presence. Delight in his goodness. Then he just erupts into worship. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord. This is his goodness. He has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. So we're getting a little bit more details of the, str- of the struggle. He's in a city that's been surrounded. And chances are this was either written by David or about David or for David. And he's the leader. And the leader led them into a city And now the city is being besieged and they've cut off the food and the water supply. They're trying to uh, build mounds to climb up over the walls. They're they're doing siege works and, and trying to destroy the wall to break in and to wreak havoc. And the adversaries are saying, oh, we never should have listened to David. He, what about, what, how did he lead us into this mess? And we, we need a different, we need to change acquaintances. We are leader and man, what a, and then all of the, neutral acquaintances, neighbors, they don't know what to say. They used to stand right by David and agree, but now they're all kind of awkwardly avoiding him. So David sees he's in this besieged city. He sees the enemy that's attacking him. He sees his adversaries who are probably part of his own camp who are turning on him. His own friends are standing aloof from him. And then that only leads him to worry. Has everyone turned on me? Has even God turned on me? Verse 22, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. In the midst of the struggle, David said, where are you, God? What are you doing, God? Are you out there, God? Are you you capable to save me? Do you care enough about me to save me? You see, trust isn't always pretty. You see a little one jump into a pool for the first time? It's not always pretty. There's a lot of hesitating. There's a lot of toe going in the water. There's a lot of turning around. Maybe I can jump back. It's not pretty, is it? And it's not always pretty for us either. And we need to understand that the Psalms help us express our heart. Sometimes, listen, again, the Psalms, these are not commands. These are an expression of feeling to show the breadth of what followers of God go through. Part of following God is at times crying out to him and saying, are you really there? You know that he's there. You know what you believe, but sometimes what you're experiencing and what you're feeling does not line up with what you believe. And the only way to deal with that is to ask him. And he will answer every time. The psalmist asked at the end of verse 22, I am cut off from your sight. Is this it, God? Have you turned your back on me? And then he says, at the middle of verse 22, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. God's not afraid of the question, where are you? God's not afraid of the question, do you really exist? God's not afraid of the question, do you really care about me? He loves to answer that question. And he answered it for the psalmist and he'll answer it for you. And then the psalmist goes from personal to public. He retells this whole story about how God came through for him and he doesn't want to just keep it for himself. So he turns and he speaks to all the other believers. Verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints, 
The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. So David uses his story to encourage other people to make sure that you love the Lord and pursue him. You wouldn't believe what happened to me. You wouldn't believe what I went through because of my own iniquity and because of the adversaries. But God came through. He is a faithful God. He says, be strong, verse 24, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The psalmist went through something where he had to relinquish control. He had to rely on God to come through. And he believed that God was capable to do it. And he believed, even in his unbelief, that God cared enough to answer the question, can I trust you? And maybe you're here today and you're wondering, can I trust the Lord? Can I step out and let him take control? Can I step out and really rely on him? I want to tell you that you can. I want to tell you that I've seen it happen in my own life. You will find yourself delighting in his goodness just the way that this psalmist is delighting in his goodness as well. And that God will give you a story to tell, to bless and encourage other people as he concludes. Be strong, take heart, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord, because the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these poems that you inspired by your spirit that give us a voice when we find ourselves in times of difficulty and struggle, that indeed do allow us to live lives of courage and strength, trusting in your sovereignty and your ability to protect us and your desire to shower grace on us. And so, Lord God, I pray for each and every person here right now. God, I pray that we would trust in you and believe, Lord, that you are for us and that you are with us and that you are good. And God, help us to keep our mouths closed. Help us to keep our hands at our sides and to trust, Lord, that you will close mouths and that you will stop the hands that come at us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to trust in you and to believe by faith that you are good. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.